Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 66. Pretty minimal if you look at just raw data. I mean, Germany is still the UK's biggest supplier of goods in the first half of 2021, according to our data, followed by China, the US, Netherlands is the fourth, and Belgium is the fifth. So that's three of the top five suppliers to the UK market are in the EU. My name is Dipesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. Today, we're talking about some of the changes in trading goods volumes over the past 12 months. A lot has changed. We've had a commodity super cycle with prices surging despite low volumes. And amidst the pandemic, trade tensions still continue all around the world. World trade of goods has declined some 12% in the last year, representing a loss of 2 trillion US dollars of trade. Is it all doom and gloom for trade, or will we see a resurgence? Data also lies at the heart of this problem, with siloed or even duplicated trade data flows by country. So today, I'm catching up with Trade Data Monitor's Chief Economic Analyst, John Miller. John, welcome to Trade Finance Talks. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you this morning. Great, you too. And thanks for waking up very early under jet lag in the States. So quick elevator pitch just to start off with. In no more than 30 seconds or so, please can you explain who you are, where you're from, and what you do? Well, I'm from Brussels. I was the trade reporter for the Wall Street Journal for a long time. Now I work for a company called Trade Data Monitor, which assembles and publishes uh, trade data from all over the world and gives you a great snapshot of what's actually happening in trading goods since we can produce, look up trade volumes, trade numbers for pretty much any commodity, any good between any two countries going back 30 years. Thanks, John. I think it's really important now more than ever to be able to really break down that trade data given some of the changes we've seen in the market and use that to produce insights and also potential strategies within many companies within the trade and trade finance industry. So let's start by giving a bit of an overview. Can you give us a summary or snapshot of what's actually going on in the commodity market right now? So as you pointed out earlier, there's been a spike in prices, which has to do in part with increased demand as factories really get going again after COVID, although with the Delta variant, there's been a slowdown again. But basically this year, trade has recovered and industrial production did get back to somewhere near where it was a couple years ago. And that's created a lot of demand for iron ore to make steel and copper for wiring and all these commodities that industries and societies need. But along with that, you've had this bottleneck in shipping, all kinds of reasons. But basically, the shipping industry has not yet caught up to demand, not offering the supply that mining companies and factories and smelters need to ship their commodities. So those two things mean that supply can be hard to get, even if it's available at the mouth of the mine, it's hard to get the factory door. And the big reason you've had an increase in prices. And that's also distorts, as you pointed out, distorts the perception of trade because volumes have actually been falling in many situations. Chinese iron ore imports are down this year, but prices are up. So it makes it look like iron ore imports are increasing, but that's not true. Got it. So we've seen a bit of a, potentially a bit of a decline in volumes, but high prices are keeping or distorting those figures. So I guess it it really does pay to not just take a helicopter view of what's going on in in commodities. And what about merchandise trade? Is that kind of at pre-pandemic levels yet? 
It is. It has recovered. And you've also seen a change in what's being traded. During the pandemic, there were huge surges in basically the stuff people need at home. So computers, furniture, routers for technology, phones, that kind of thing. And decrease in things like shoes, luggage, anything you need to get around, petroleum imports, trade was way down. And now it's kind of recovered as people get out about more and leave the home again. And that also reflects the stimulus policies in the U.S. and Europe, which have kept money in consumers' pockets, which is obviously really important, consumer demand. And that's sort of stabilized trade, too, because consumer demand tends to be for things that are not made in the U.S. and Europe and the U.K., mostly imported from um, Asia. I've been talking about everything from, as I mentioned before, computers, but also board games, furniture, lamps, everything you have in your home is traded. And so when basic household demand is strong, then trade is strong too. And that has recovered. There are other industries such as the travel industry. And even when we're talking about, and the tourism industry, and even when we're talking about trade in goods, they've been impacted. And have you seen a bit of a spike, obviously, probably not to pre-pandemic levels yet in various goods associated with those industries as countries and markets have slowly started to open up to international travel and maybe even tourism? Yeah. So, I mean, Trade Data Monitor, we uh, assemble and count trading goods, not in service. But there's pretty smart ways in which economists can associate goods with services trades. So, for example, wine trade tends to follow how well restaurants are doing or um, luggage trade tends to follow travel. And so you have seen, again, rebounded in demand. It does feel very fragile, but that's not necessarily something that we see in the trade numbers. I mean, you can see with the news you're reading about Delta variant and the risk of the economy, but that's not something we see yet in trade. Trade data this year looks pretty good. It looks like the world has gotten back to normal-ish. But again, I mean, that's a lot due to the resiliency of the economies, which a year and a half ago, we didn't know that we'd be in as good a place as we are now. Even if it is fragile, consumer demand has pretty much held up and we haven't seen a great depression because of COVID. But I guess another thing we have to remain cautious about is the stimulus from many countries around the world, which, as you said, are aligning consumers' pockets. What do you think could be the impacts of those as they start to get lifted and taken away? Right. I mean, nobody knows. And that's not necessarily something we would be able to tell you with trade data. Consumer demand tends to drive trade. If that slips, I mean, yeah, you'd see the great sort of manufacturing export powerhouses of Asia, especially China, lose exports. And export growth did slow a little bit in July, our latest release of Chinese trade data. It was still up, but it was not up by as much as in June. There is some concern that the Chinese economy growth could be slowing, which is also because of perceived risks in the US and Europe. Those July numbers might be along the lines of what you're saying, and that's sort of a suggestion that the sort of strong consumer demand might be in peril the rest of the year. Thanks very much, John. Very interesting. So moving on to another hot topic, Brexit, or rather the repercussions and the impacts of Brexit that we're now seeing several years down the line. What's been the impact of Brexit on UK trade, both from an imports and exports basis? Pretty minimal. If you look at just raw data, I mean, Germany is still the UK's biggest supplier of goods in the first half of 2021, according to our data, followed by China, the US, Netherlands is the fourth, and Belgium is the fifth. So that's three of the top five suppliers to the UK market are in the EU. Chinese imports from, or imports from China were up 48% compared to 15% for Germany. So there is possibility that China and the US could grab more market share as it becomes a little more fraught with Europe. But essentially, I mean, it's still part of the same market, I think, de facto for companies. 
The U.S. now is uh, the U.K.'s biggest market for traded goods by um, values, followed by Germany, Switzerland, Netherlands, and Ireland. So that's, again, three of the top five export markets for the U.K. are in Europe with the U.S. and Switzerland being the other one. Switzerland's because of gold, by the way. That's not manufactured goods. But the U.S., you have a lot of machinery, cars made in the U.K. shipped to the U.S., luxury cars, I assume. That doesn't say in the trade data, but I assume there's Rolls Royces there. Pharmaceutical products, organic chemicals, a really wide variety of goods shipped from the UK to the US every year. But again, I mean, Germany is a substantial market for the UK too. And so in the trade day, because tariffs are, are still the same and supply chains are still pretty much intact, and the fraying of that will come over the years as there's trade cases and litigation, there's no reason for companies to stop importing you know, whatever, the, whatever pieces or parts for their goods. There's no reason for them to stop because it's still a strong commercial ally for the UK. I guess going into a little bit more detail on you know, business businesses should continue trading. Let's focus more on the UK-EU relationship where probably we've seen the most change. Surely the huge rise in litigation and various anti-dumping measures, etc. in the North Sea, surely that's had an impact on, let's say, chemical companies. Right. So the risk of facing those down the line is causing a lot of companies to look at supply chains. Legislation on chemicals forces companies to register anything they make in the EU at a substantial cost. I think it's 30 or 40 or 50,000 euros per chemical. And so if you're in the UK and you used to be able to do that only with the EU regulator, not have to worry about the British regulator. Now you have to worry about the British regulator too. It might think twice about remaining based in the UK. It might make more sense to base yourself in Antwerp or Amsterdam and do business from there. So I think the supply chains are going to move more towards Europe to take advantage of the single regulator and not have to deal with two regulators. But that's going to take some time to shake out and companies are going to have to assess costs and talking about a very complicated down or I guess upstream production of polyethylenes, plastics, these things that are very much the base of manufactured goods. And there is expected to be some changes in supply chains disadvantaging the UK market where it'll make more sense to make things in Europe to avoid the extra cost of the UK regulator. On that note of various trade agreements, do you think there are any potential free trade agreements that the UK are entering or looking into entering that you think might be particularly interesting or perhaps turn the needle a little bit? The Australian one seems like a big deal. UK exports in the first half of 2021 to Australia were 3 billion US dollars, according to our data, which is a substantial amount and imports were 2.2 billion. So 5.2 billion in trade in the first half of 2021. So 10 billion total trade for the year. So that that's promising. I mean, Obviously, the holy grail would be a, a UK-US free trade deal, which I believe Boris Johnson wants to do. But the appetite now for free trade deals in the US is, is very minimal. So when there is a sense in which the free trade consensus of elite decision makers is over for now, the hyper-globalization we saw in the 90s and the aughts is sort of on pause for now, I think, as protectionist sentiment mounts and, and there's more skepticism about trade deals. But it does make sense for the UK to go out and do these deals. It's still a great merchandise commercial power in many ways. And you have London and I think there's still a lot of things the UK government can do. Let's exit the United Kingdom and let's move on to a few other trade relationships. The tension between Australia and China continues to rise. What was causing this? Can you explain the situation? What's the impact on Australia-China trade? There's a lot of regional politics, Australia-China, and especially COVID has been a source of contention. Australia is essential in many ways to Chinese industrial development. Western Australia basically furnished all the iron ore that made all the steel that built modern China. It's been an incredible source of essential commodities. But now the Australian government is looking at alternative markets. I mean, we'd actually done some work for them recently in looking at where else Australian beef, Australian wine, 
Australian fisheries could be exported. And again, I think this is part of the kind of redrawing from hyperglobalization that we're seeing now, including China looking inward and not being as dependent on markets in the US and Europe and Australia, partly because of the booming Asian market. Other Asian countries developing Vietnam is a huge source of growth for Chinese exporters now. This tension with, with Australia, I think you'll see you know, more of that this decade. And I think there'll be more political considerations that will force changes in how countries trade. This is not like the Chinese government shipping out stuff. This is BHP Billiton with shareholders in London. This is a wine producer whose owner is American. I mean, that's the thing about modern trade. It's uh, very impactful all over the world and not just in the country's concern. For sure. I think that's really important and it continues to change. Let's talk a bit more about China. So China is on the brink, it seems, of overtaking America as the world's biggest importer. Is that still the case? Do you think that's going to happen? Is that due to the high iron ore prices? So Don Brasher, the CEO of Trade Data Monitor, and I have a running bet about when this will happen. We thought it would happen last month and it hasn't yet. So what we're talking about is the status of the world's number one importer of goods by value. So in other words, where is the place where people or humans are buying the most? The last, you know, since World War II, it's been the US. It's also, by the way, why the US has had so much leverage in trade negotiations. It's still Americans who buy the most stuff, basically. Australia has been catching up mostly because of their huge appetite for commodities, notably iron ore to make, which is used to make steel. But also, I mean, the Chinese market is growing and consumers are, you know, shipping in more BMWs from Germany and more Chateau Lafitte from uh, French wine country and more baseball gloves from Texas. There's more appetite for goods now for among Chinese consumers. So that's part of it too. In any case, what we're talking about is just the general prosperity of China. And it's a status they kind of covet to be the number one importer of merchandised goods. I mean, it's the most powerful trading nation the world's ever seen. And so this is sort of, this will kind of cement that. Anyway, it's going to happen before the end of the year, we think. And yes, in large part because of their appetite for soybeans and iron ore and copper and other essential commodities, but it reflects an overall prosperity that is the biggest story of this century, economically, politically, diplomatically. I mean, China becoming the world's number one economy is looming. And this is part of that. And how do you think slash how is America reacting to losing its coveted place as number one importer? The political consensus now is that the U.S. should import less. So, you know, trade's not really on the agenda right now. I mean, the Biden administration is not expected to really do or say anything about trade. I mean, it seems the Trump administration turned real and ended the elite free trade consensus that you cannot win a national election now in the U.S. by campaigning for free trade. It makes you look foolish. I mean, the whole trade creates winners and losers. And and while it's contributed to overall prosperity in many ways, it's also crippled thousands of small towns in the middle of the U.S., which is what got Trump elected. And so nobody's going to poke that beast for now. I mean, this is something that economists pay attention to, but I think most Americans would say it's okay to import less. Taking more of a forward-looking view, and I'd like you to get your crystal ball out and give a few reflections and thoughts on where you see the global trade industry going over the next 12 months. Who do you think are going to be the winners and and the losers? What do you think is going to be the impact perhaps of stimulus being pulled and and how will that ripple out into trade? I think one set of winners is uh, Asian countries who have been improving their 
export manufacturing base to compete with China and have tempered COVID successfully. So thinking mainly about Vietnam, but also Malaysia and Taiwan, Singapore, these countries have been ramping up exports this year and will continue. The base of the global economy is still in many ways consumers in the US and Europe. And as you pointed out, there's some risk there. But essentially, we're okay for now. I mean, trade has recovered this year, like we talked about earlier. We think that we'll be okay for next 12 months. There's enough demand. There is some slowing of growth, but essentially the global trading system is working for now. That is underpinned by consumer demand in the US and Europe, but also increasingly in Asia where economies are more prosperous. So we don't think there'll be a collapse like there was in, in 2020. We think there'll be some slowing of growth, but essentially strong trading regime for the next 12 months. Thank you very much, Donna. A fairly positive, upbeat view on what could happen in the next 12 months. I think one thing that we've certainly learned is hyper-globalization has, has certainly slowed. And it's not necessarily all about those that negotiate the best free trade agreements, because perhaps they're not what's best for getting votes and getting elected. I think we've definitely seen a recovery of global trade volumes, perhaps faster than one would expect in, in just the past one and a half years since the start of the pandemic. But perhaps that is kind of propped up by a general increase in, in commodity prices. And I guess it's fairly nuanced and you need to look into a bit of detail there, especially with regards to iron ore. But there's lots on the agenda. And I think it's definitely overwhelming evidence that all eyes are not just on China, but on Asian economies over the next 12 months. So look, John, we will speak very soon and keep updated on what's going on in the market. We're really looking forward to next month's figures to see how your bet is faring on China. But thank you very much for joining us on Trade Finance Talks. Thank you so much for having me. And please check out tradedatamonitor.com for some of our analysis about some of the stuff we talked about, including global trade and Chinese exports and Australia too, by the way. Thanks, John. A pleasure. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com 